Psalm 75 is a song rejoicing in the triumph of the upright. The triumph of the upright. Now this is another psalm written by the sons of Asaph. You'll remember in Psalm 74 they sung of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it wasn't a song of rejoicing, but a song of mourning. They cried out to God to deliver them from their enemies, to restore them to the place of blessing. And now in Psalm 75, they're anticipating that victory. They're recognizing that indeed God will judge the wicked at the time he appoints. And additionally, they rejoice in knowing that God will exalt the righteous. Now, as we move through Psalm 75, we're going to see several themes. A theme of praise in verse 1. A theme of providence in verse 2. A theme of perversion in verses 3 to 5. A theme of promotion in verses 6 to 8. And a theme of prosperity in verses 9 to 10. So let's begin with verse 1 and the theme of praise. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. Notice how we begin with this repetition of thanks in verse 1. And, and indeed, this acclamation is intense. Uh, anytime you see that doubling or that repetition of a word or phrase in the Psalms, it's declaring an intensity. So their praise is not, you know, simply, oh, thank you, Lord, but thank you, Lord. There's an excitement. There's an intensity to it. And what is the basis for their praise? God's wondrous works. And God's wondrous works, you can translate that as God's surpassing extraordinary acts. God has intervened on their behalf. He's done miraculous things, things that they cannot even begin to comprehend. And so they praise God. And folks, I, I have to challenge us that, you know, we so often pray, we so often cry out to God. You know, we have personal prayer lists and public prayer lists and, and church prayer lists and so forth that are all filled with all these prayers, but how come there's so little praise? Is it because God is not answering? And if not, why not? Or has he answered, but we've seemingly forgotten? You know, for as much prayer, there ought to be double the amount of praise. If we want God's if we, want to, if we see God's wondrous works, if we see God's answering prayer, we need to make sure that we're publicly professing as loud as we can, thanks to God. Verse 2, we see providence, the theme of providence. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. Now God speaks here. Verse 1, it's the sons of Asaph. But all of a sudden now God speaks to them and they're recording what God says. And we see two things here. One, God is the judge of time, or excuse me, God is the Lord of time. God chooses when to act. He's sovereign. We're subject to him. He's not subject to us. Now, I know that can be a cause of frustration, especially in, in ministry and especially in trying to serve the Lord, because, you know, we so desperately want, you know, this and that, and, you know, we want to see God bless, and we want to see God grow, and so forth. Uh, but really, we have to wait on God's time. We can't run ahead of God and then think God has to catch up to us. No, we have to wait on God and make sure that, you know, as, as we pray and pray diligently, we're waiting for the Father to say, yes, here's, here's what we're going to do. You know, I think so many times uh, as Christians, uh, we end up falling. We end up falling on our faces because we ran ahead of God rather than waiting on God. Second, God declares himself here to be the upright judge. He is the upright judge. He judges with equity. 
you know, he, he executes his will not based on emotion, not based on the circumstances or the situations. He bases it on his will. And that's a good example for us. You know, we're told to not judge hypocri- hypocritically, but to judge righteously. And in order to judge righteously, we have to judge as God judges. And if God judges according to his will and not according to emotions, situations, or circumstances, then that's what we have to follow. Well, how do I know God's will? We find God's will revealed in the pages of his scripture, revealed in the precepts, the principles, and the positions of his word. Verse 3 to 5, we now have perversion. And particularly in verses 3 to 5, we're going to see it's the perversion of the proud and the wicked. God continues, he says, The earth and all who dwelt in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. Selah. I said to the boastful, do not boast. I said to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Now, really, what we see a parallelism here, because it's not two groups of people. It's the one and the same. The boastful are wicked, and the wicked are boastful. He tells them, do not boast. Don't lift up your horn. Don't toot your own horn. Don't say how great you are. You're speaking with insolent pride. That word insolent pride is the idea of a stiff neck. You're stiff-necked. You're arrogant. And I will cut you off. Now he's talking about judgment here. And again, that's the theme he said. Listen, I'm not only the Lord of time, and that was important because... They wanted God to act now, and God said, I'm going to act in my time. I'll judge the wicked in my time. Well, guess what? The time is up now for the wicked, and he's going to judge them for their perversions, for their pride. You know, that, that, if there's one sin that just really gets at God, it is pride. Now, certainly all sin gets at God, but pride was the original sin of Satan. You know, pride is the original sin that, uh, you know, that Adam and Eve dealt with, you know, Satan, of course he went after their lust of their flesh and the lust of their eyes, but he went after the pride of life. Don't you want to be like God? And, you know, that's what we have to check ourselves, that we're not falling into that trap of pride. And, you know, and pride isn't just patting yourself on the back and saying how great you are. Pride can be having a stiff neck, you know, being unrelenting. Now, yes, there's times to be unrelenting. You know, when it comes to God, when it comes to doctrine, sound doctrine, when it comes to the scriptures, when it, when it comes to those things, yes, we need to be unrelenting. But, you know, how many times are there these non-essentials that, you know, okay, that's your issue, that's my issue, move on, okay? Uh, it's not worth being uh, arrogant over, but that's, you know, we become so arrogant as if our opinion is the only opinion that counts. And that's, again, that's pride. That's pride. Now, verses 6 to 8, we see the theme of promotion. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Psalmist here has been meditating on God's word. From verses 2 through 5, God has been speaking. And now, here's the response by the sons of Asaph. Here's their worship. Remember verse 1, they started off worshiping God, praising God. Then God stopped and said, hey, listen, I've got something to say. Now, here they're responding. When we hear God speak, what's our response? Our response is to examine ourselves. Our response is to hear and to consider, to meditate on what God has said. 
You know, I think so often when we have our times of worship, you know, we just want to race through our worship. You know, okay, you know, let's, let, let's pray, let's sing, let's hear what the pastor says, and then boom, we're out the door, we're on the move. But that's really not the end of worship. There has to be a time of reflective meditating, reflective meditation upon what was just said. If we've heard from God, who are we to just run out and on to our next thing without taking a moment to consider, to reflect? You know, and I so often wonder, you know, after we're done preaching and we leave, you know, our church services, you know, and we get caught back up in the rat race of life, do we ever give the message another thought? Do we ever take the time during the week to reflect back on the message and to contemplate and to think about what was said and what it means and and the application? If we haven't, then we have failed God. We have not done what we're to do. We have failed our responsibility. Because yes, we need to praise God. Worship begins with praise to God. Then we hear from God. And after we've heard from God, we need to meditate. And when you think about that, you know, we, we we, we, we pray and we praise God in song Then we hear from him in his word, but then we run right out the door and we're on to the next thing because we're so busy. We've got so much to do. Really? You can't take a few more moments. You can't set aside some time during that day or even during the week to meditate on what God has said. That's what we see here in verse six through eight, their meditation. Now, their first thought is that exaltation does not come from the east or the west or the south. That's the desert. Okay, The desert was south of them. It does not originate on this planet, basically, is the idea. Exaltation comes from God. If God has exalted you, if God has lifted you up, you can't pat yourself on the back. You can't say, hey, look at what God has done. Now, again, let's set this in the context of what's happening. God has rescued them. Again, remember their calamity in the previous chapter in Psalm 74? Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Now, God's bringing them back. Now, God's restoring their fortune. Hey, I can't. He's exalting me, but I can't pat myself on the back because I didn't do it. It comes from God. He is the judge, which we saw in verse 2. We're seeing again now here in verse 6 through 8. He is the judge. He puts down one. He exalts another. Reminds me of what he says to Daniel. I raise up kings and I take down kings. You know, I, I, I love that verse because everybody runs around fretting who's in charge and what this one's going to do and that one's going to do. And I sit back and I laugh because, you know what? At the end of the day, God's on the throne and God is going to raise up who he wants and he's going to take down when he's done with them. Same thing here. He can put down the wicked and he can exalt the righteous and he can do vice versa. And he has. Listen, Psalm 74, he he exalted the wicked and he put down the righteous because he had a plan and a purpose. Part of it was because of their disobedience. But now that he has chastised them and they've learned their lesson, now God is going to exalt the righteous and put down the wicked. He says there's a cup in his hand. It is a cup of judgment. And, and, and that wine in that cup is, is foaming, it's, it's well mixed, and he's going to pour out that wine of judgment and the wicked of the earth. Listen, they aren't going to have a choice. They aren't going to take a sip. He's literally going to grab them, pull their head back, drop their mouth open, and they're going to drown in the wine of God's 
judgment. Okay, uh, this cup of judgment uh, is held in God's hand, and there, there's not going to be a party. There's not going to be any imbibing. There's just going to be a complete and utter drowning of judgment. Then verses 9 to 10, we see the theme of prosperity. The theme of prosperity. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, and all the horns of the wicked he'll cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. The, the, the phrase there, the verb there, I will declare, literally, I will confess the sons of Asaph. But as for us, we're going to confess it forever. They're going to witness God's judgment forever. They're going to testify of it. There's going to be a constant witness. And, you know, again, let's think about worship, okay? There's the praise aspect of worship. There's the hearing from God aspect of worship. There's the meditation that must follow aspect, the meditation aspect of worship. Then what happens? Okay, well, I've meditated now, and I've thought about it, and I've applied, blah, 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 and now I can just go on. No. Now your responsibility is to go out and declare, confess what you have heard. Confess who God is. Now, they've just learned that God is judge, and now they're going to go out and tell and witness to that fact that God has judged and that he is the judge. And I love the fact because this is what spurns the, thought, the next, uh, the next uh, bit of worship. I'll declare it, I'll witness it, I'll confess it, and then what? He's back to worship. I'll sing praises to the God of Jacob. And so really there's this flow here that we see, okay, worship, witness, worship. Okay? Worship, witness, worship. Worship is praise, hearing from God, and meditation, which then leads us to our witness. And once we've done witnessing, we go back to our worship. In Revelation chapter 5, you know, we, we see the same pattern. That, uh, you know, they see the Lamb on the throne, they break out in song, then they hear from Him, and then they testify to what He is doing. You know, God has the last word, folks. Uh, he cuts off, He terminates the horns of the wicked, the power of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous, the power of the righteous, uh, He will lift up. Okay, He'll restore. Now, who are the righteous? Those who live in covenant relationship, those who are obedient to God and His Word. They will be exalted. Their godly power will be magnified in the day of judgment. And you know, folks, when we think about these verses here, we need to recognize there's really only two alternatives, okay? You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You're either regenerate or you're unregenerate. All right, you're either good or you're evil. There's no middle ground when it comes to God. And God is going to judge. He's going to judge. He's either going to judge you as righteous or he's going to judge you as wicked. And if he judges you as righteous, praise God, he's going to exalt you, he's going to lift you up. But if he judges you as wicked, he is going to cut you down. And that cutting down may come in this life, but it will certainly come in the next. It will certainly come in eternity, in eternal damnation in the lake of fire for those who, have, who are the wicked. This is why the message of the gospel is so important. This is why it is so important to go out and declare that Jesus, the Son of God, has 
died and shed his blood for the remission of sin, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. We need to tell people that they have a sin problem and their sin problem creates a hell problem, a lake of fire problem. Because of our sin, we will be cast into hell in the lake of fire. But God has provided a gift through his son, Jesus Christ. He's provided us a savior, one who saves us from sin, one who saves us from eternal damnation. Folks, listen, if you preach the entire gospel message, but you never tell them about hell, you miss the message, and here's why. What do you need a Savior for? Okay? Listen, if, if you're not going someplace bad, what do you need to be saved from? If you don't have a sin problem, listen, if you're not telling people they got a sin problem, why do they need a Savior? So we got to tell them about the sin problem. we got to tell them about the damnation issue. And we got to tell them, hey, now here's why you got a Savior, and tell them who that Savior is. That Savior isn't Confucius. It's not Muhammad. It's not anybody. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what did he do? He died and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. And so in the words of Jesus, we must proclaim, repent, and believe the gospel of the kingdom. That's the only means of rescuing the wicked, is for them to come to Jesus as their Messiah and King, their Savior and their Lord. He is the judge and he will judge. And folks, we can rejoice because so often I know when calamity strikes, that's all we see, that's all we experience. And it's very hard because in the midst of our calamities, we look around and it seems like the wicked are winning. But we have Psalm 75 as a follow-up. And it reminds us that we will be triumphal. We can rejoice because we are righteous, because we are the upright. And we know and, and can be confident. Do not lose hope. Do not... Do not become discouraged or despondent. If you are the righteous of God, if you are the child of God, you're obedient to God, listen, you can sit back and know God is going to lift you up. And in His time, in His way, He will judge and He will bring down the wicked. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you, Lord. We come before your throne of grace. We come because of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior our sin bearer. And Lord, as we come to you, we come because we need your help. Father, so often we become despondent, so often we, we just constantly see all the wickedness around us and we seemingly think that somehow they're winning. We've taken our eye off the eternal prize. And so Father, help us, Lord. Help us when we're down. Help us when we're discouraged. We need you every hour. We need you to help us keep our focus where it needs to be. Help us to keep our focus on you as the Lord of time. And that, Father, you'll work all these things out in your time. Help us to remember that you are the judge. And that, Father, you'll judge us if we're unrighteous. That you will judge us and our works. So, Lord, help us to, to examine our works to make sure they're being done for your glory and not our gratification. Father, help us to remember that you are the judge and the wicked may seem to win today, but in the long run, they will be the losers. You will cut them down. They will drink from the cup of judgment and you will be vindicated and you will vindicate your people. Father, we thank and praise you for that. We thank and praise you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your equitable justice. And for this we say, Amen.